Alright, well I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. And as you're turning there, I want to show you a, a book that my, my family obtained a, a copy of this past summer. It's called the Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. Um, any of you familiar with this book at all? Only some of you. Tim Iverson, do you know this book? You've heard of it. Okay, well, maybe you can like touch it at the end of service. <laughs> might, might be good. This, is, this book is um, designed to deal with the worst-case scenarios you might find yourself in. Like, for instance, it says right here on the front, how to escape from quicksand, or how to wrestle with an alligator, how to break down a door, or to land an airplane like you are going to have those problems. Escapes and entrances. How to escape from a a sinking car. Defending yourself. Fending off a shark or a mountain lion. Leaps of faith. How to leap from a bridge or cliff into a river. I like this one. How to maneuver on top of a moving train and get inside. Emergencies. How to identify a bomb. How to treat frostbite. Adventure survival. How to survive. You're in the line of fire. How to survive an avalanche. Really interesting read for those of you who are, who are interested. Now, along with this, though, came, came a box of cards. This is called the Worst Case Scenario Survival Game. And uh, this, uh, this consists of you know, basically just cards that uh, have, have something here, like how to escape from killer bees right here. And then it gives three different ways of, of how to escape. And uh, our family likes to... We've played this game before. And uh, it consists of three answers, and just let, let's try this a little bit. Let me read the answers, and then what, what I'll do is I'll give you one, two, and three. I'll read it again, and then I'll say, okay, how do you escape from killer bees? The answer, one, two, or three, and one, two, three. You hold out one finger, or two finger, or three fingers, okay? We'll see who can get this right. How to escape from killer bees? You jump, number one, jump into a body of water if you are near one. Two, run away as fast as you can. Or three, stand, stand still. Okay, and wait, 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 don't vote yet, don't vote yet. Okay, I'll read one last time. How to escape from killer bees. Jump into a body of water, run away as fast as you can, stand still. Okay, you ready? We'll go one, two, three, and then you, you raise your fingers. One, two, three. All right, who are the twos? Keep your fingers up. Okay, all right, let's, let's try this one again. You ready? How to survive going over a waterfall. Now, these are kind of longer, I'll, I'll just read them. One, dive head first with your hands protecting your head from the rocks. Two, taking a deep breath, jump feet first, wrap your arms around your head to protect it, and swim away from the falls as soon as you hit the water. Three, breathe calmly, jump out, and grab your knees to your chest in a cannonball formation. Okay, you ready? I'll, I'll do one, two, three. Ready? One, two, three. I think most of you got that one right. If you missed that one, you're in trouble. Okay. How about, how about this one? I like this one. How to cross piranha-infested river. All right, here you go. One. Don't. <laughs> Quickly and quietly cross the river at night while they are sleeping. Two. Wait until you see them feeding and then cross the river while they are distracted. Three. Cross the river early in the morning and throw stones behind you to distract them. All right, you ready? One, two, three. One. Oops. Oops. Who, who's got all of them right so far? 
Anyone got every single one right so far? Have we dusted off everybody here? Andrew has? Who else has? Has he? This is just a great play, even play with kids, because they got a, like a one in three chance. I was just thinking about maybe a competition here. Who's, Andrew, you left? Is anybody else left? Any adults? Tim, you missed? Dirk? Where's Dirk? Did you get him? Oh, this is a game you want to play with everybody except Dirk, but um, maybe the... <laughs> one last one. Here, how's this? Um... How to eat animals after a nuclear explosion. One, carefully skin them and avoid all meat that's close to the bone. Two, do not eat animals unless they were protected in a shelter. Three, boil the animals, then remove the skins before eating them. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Uh, Mike, did you get any right? <laughs> you got skunked. You know, there is something here... I, I was, I was reading through these, something about how to remove skunk smell from your car if you happen to get it. So if you were skunked, that's, that's how it is. So, well, You got it again? Unbelievable. Okay, maybe I'll give you a prize, all right? <laughs> I bring up the worst case scenario game because we're in a study of the book of Jonah. And in Jonah chapter 2, we find Jonah in a worst case scenario. He found himself drifting at sea ending up in the stomach of a fish. And I was, I was wondering this week, as he was there, was, was he looking for a book like this? How much he would have wanted this? But, you know, I, I looked through this book, I looked through the cards, I didn't find anything about how to escape from a big fish, if you're in it. I did, though, I, I did find some, though, that might be applicable to Jonah if he was um, adrift at sea. Like this one, even. How to survive adrift at sea. Jonah would have been helped by that, or... How to remain afloat in the sea for long periods. How to swim in the ocean safely. How to find drinking water when lost at sea. How to find land when lost at sea. How to swim in heavy seas. How to abandon a sinking vessel at sea. And then, you know, maybe I'm getting stretched out more. How to avoid a shark attack. Maybe he would have liked that one. How to recognize a ship coming to your rescue. How to select and eat shark for dinner. Maybe those would have been helpful to him. He didn't have any of those. But in reality, though, he had what he needed. He had God's Word hidden in his heart. And that's what he used. The good news is that Jonah escaped, not by trusting in his knowledge he gained from the worst-case scenario game, but rather he trusted in the Lord by praying to Him. Well, let's look at Jonah chapter 2. I want to read it for you this morning. It's Jonah in the stomach of the fish. We begin where the Hebrew text does, chapter 2, which is actually chapter 1, verse 17. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. 
I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But You have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to You and to Your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to You with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited up Jonah, vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Verse 17 finds Jonah in the stomach of a great fish. Now, the path that he got there was actually a path of rebellion. Last week we looked at how the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, instructing him to go to Nineveh. I didn't mention last week, but you can read in 2 Kings 14.25 how Jonah was from Gath-Hefer, which is another name for Galilee. He was a, a Galilean prophet to Israel. He was a prophet, a great prophet in Israel who prophesied of great military success in the days of Jeroboam II. So 793 B.C. to 753 B.C. is about time when Jonah was. But now, God was calling him to be a missionary. I don't think that in Jonah's heart and mind, being a missionary was too dreadful for him. I think he was open to that. But being a missionary to Nineveh, that was a different matter entirely. The Ninevites were arch enemies of Israel. And the thought of God extending mercy to the Ninevites was really too much for him to handle. And so, as verse 3 says, he fled. fled to Tarshish by way of Joppa. Joppa was the sea coast on the western edge of Israel. And so he fled to Tarshish. But God, in His grace and His mercy, pursued Jonah. He pursued him by sending a storm. Verse 4, pursued him by sending a preacher, the captain, who said the same things that God did. Arise and call out. God pursued Jonah by directing the lots of the sailors to fall upon him so they would know upon whose account the storm was. God pursued Jonah by giving him an example before his eyes of those who feared the Lord and that he might do so likewise. God pursued Jonah by calming the seas when Jonah was cast overboard. the beginning of verse 17, we see God also pursuing Jonah by sending a great fish to swallow him. And this fish was actually the preservation of Jonah's life. As I mentioned last week, I believe this is a real fish. I believe that if we had video cameras there, underwater, see, we could have filmed Jonah being swallowed by this great fish. What kind of fish it is, I'm not sure. How he survived, I'm not sure. I think it was a miracle, along with the other miracles that we've seen in the book of Jonah, like the storm and the lots and the calming of the sea. And, and maybe the, the greatest miracle of them all was the repentance that we'll see in chapter 3 next week of Nineveh. That this whole entire city repents in sackcloth and ashes. I just... Can you imagine Rockford starting with the mayor, issuing a decree, and everybody in sackcloth and ashes not eating anything? All the restaurants are barren because we're not eating anything. Pleading with the Lord, forgiveness. That was the miracle, the biggest of them all. But some critics have dismissed this story as mere fable. They've really gone at it. The philosophy world and the science world, they say, oh, we can't believe the Bible because Jonah. I mean, you can't believe that, can you? Like the school teacher, Mrs. Crump, who was teaching biology class to the little kids. One day, teacher began the class and said, Class, today we're going to begin studying zoology. The first subject in zoology we're going to study is whales. Does anybody know about whales? And the whole room was quiet. 
And then little Sally raised her hand, and Mrs. Crump said to Sally, Sally, what do you know about, about whales? And Sally said, Jonah was swallowed by a whale, and Mrs. Crump, being the non-believer she was, said, that's nonsense. The throat of whales is too small, too narrow to swallow a man. Where would you get that foolish supposition? She said, and Sally said, well, that's what my Bible says. Huh. Mrs. Crump then replied to this poor little child, well, your Bible is wrong. A whale's throat is much too narrow to swallow a man. What do you think now? And the little Sally thought, and she said, well, I guess I have to wait until I get to heaven and ask Jonah himself what happened. Well, Mrs. Crump thought she'd be smart and says, what, happened if, what will happen if Jonah's not there? For you to ask that question. And so little Sally thought for a minute and she said, well, I guess that you, Mrs. Crump, will have to ask him. <laughs> right? Critics, unbelievers, try to denounce their view of the Bible because Jonah is not believable. I said, if you believe the other things in Jonah, you can certainly believe it. Now, some well-meaning Christians have sought to search deep for history to try to find reasons in which to believe that Jonah was really swallowed by a big fish. The story most often told is the story of James Bartley, who according to legend was an English fisherman who was fishing off the coast of the Falkland Islands one time, is thrown from his whaling ship, the Star of the East, in the late 1800s and presumed lost at sea. As legend has it, later he was discovered inside the whale that had been harpooned. He had been there for three days and this they, they opened up this whale, they found this man and he was in there and as legend has it, they kind of pushed him, he signs of life and resuscitated and lived to tell the story. He was taken back to England and received medical treatment, lived out his life, although his skin was blemished from the gastric juices. Now, although people may refer to this story, I, I think it's probably legend. I think it's probably fantasy. Way more fantasy than the book of Jonah is. You just look for this man's name, James Bartley, on the internet and you'll find people's pros and cons, but the guy researched it and said, I, I can't find any proof. Now, maybe, maybe not, we don't know, but, but Christians have sought long and hard to try to find proof that you can stay alive in a fish for several days. And I think that uh, maybe that helps. I think in some sense it hurts the book of Jonah because Jonah is a miraculous story. It doesn't matter whether anybody else had been swallowed by a whale. Does it matter that anybody else other than Jesus rose from the dead on the third day? It really fundamentally doesn't, though there were many people in the Bible who have raised from the dead. But the Bible says Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights, and I believe it. And it's a miracle. Now, I do believe I stand on firm footing because Jesus himself believed this miracle. Jesus said in Matthew 12:40. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the fish. Jesus believed it. Jesus, the Son of God. God believed the story, then I believe the story. If he took it for face value, I think we ought to take it for face value. If the story of Jonah were untrue, well, we could equally say the story of Christ in the grave, three days and three nights, is untrue as well. And if that's true... He wasn't there. We're following a lie. And of all men, we are most to be pitied. So I believe it's true. So what did Jonah do when he's in the stomach of the fish? Well, he prayed. You see there in verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. 
You know, prayer is probably the first thing you ought to do whenever you find yourself in a worst-case scenario. Maybe all these ought to have a fourth point. What should you do in this worst-case scenario? You should pray. So that's what Jonah did. That's what we ought to do. I mean, listen think about it. God is the one who's going to rescue you if you ever just survive from an avalanche. God's going to be the one that does it. God's going to be the one who protects you should you ever need to jump from a moving train. And God's the one who's going to help you to stay afloat when adrift at sea. God's the one who's going to send the ship to help you. God is. And I studied this passage this week. One thing became crystal clear to me this week. The value of the Psalms. To the Christian, the Psalms are the worst case scenario survival handbook. I mean, it is amazing. As Jonah prayed this prayer, this prayer is a stream of verses from the Psalms. He just links psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm. I don't know how many. I didn't even count, but 10 or 15 different psalms. In fact, what I want you to do is I want you to look at Jonah 2, and I just want to read some psalms for you. Okay, so you look there, and you kind of listen to what these psalms say. Don't worry about getting these down. You get them on the notes when they come out. And I'm just going to work through Jonah. Now, some of this phraseology will match exactly Some of it will just be sort of close, but close enough. Psalm 120, verse 1. In my trouble I cried to the Lord, and He answered me. Psalm 86, verse 13. You have delivered my soul from the depth of Sheol. Psalm 88, verse 6. You have put me into the lowest pit, in the dark places, in the depths. Psalm 42, verse 7. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Psalm 31, verse 2. As for me, I said my alarm, I'm cut off from before your eyes. Psalm 5, verse 7. But as for me, at your holy temple I will bow in reverence for you. Psalm 69, verse 1. The waters have threatened my life. Psalm 69, verse 2. I have come into the deep waters and the flood overflows me. Psalm 18, verse 4, The cords of death encompassed me. Psalm 88, verse 6, You have put me in the lowest pit, in the dark places, in the depths. Psalm 18, verse 5, The cords of Sheol surrounded me. Here we go. Psalm 40, verse 2. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. Psalm 61, verse 2. I call to you and my heart is faint. Psalm 77, verse 2. In the day of trouble I sought the Lord. Psalm 18, verse 6. He heard my voice out of His temple. Psalm 31, 6 and 7. I hate those who regard vain idols. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness. Psalm 116, 17, and 18. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. And Psalm 3, verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. You see some of these quotes were almost exactly what you had in your Bible? Some of them were very close. And here's the implication of this, though. Is that though none of the psalmists ever found themselves in the stomach of the big fish... There was enough material in the Psalms for Jonah 
to use the phraseology of them to exactly describe his situation. In other words, the Psalms are capable of providing for us our prayers in the most troublesome circumstances that we find ourselves. So I don't know where today finds you all. I know some of where it finds you all. Some of you are struggling with unemployment. Some of you may be distressed about the state of your marriage. Some of you may be captivated by pornography. Some of you may be having difficulties with your children. Some of you are dealing with deaths of your loved ones. Some of you may be dealing with a, facing a future of uncertainties. Maybe some of you are facing having family members who are sick. Maybe you are hurting by the actions of other people. Maybe you're battling depression. I mean, I can go on and on and on with different problems that people have, different difficulties they have. And I know that there are hurts in this room that far beyond even what I can say, even what I can think, even what I know. But the good news is this, God knows what you're dealing with. And God's provided us with a book that's sufficient to deal with all these things in an appropriate way as we pray to Him for help. Now sure, the Psalms may not contain a situation exactly like your situation. But if Jonah could dig through the Psalms and pray a prayer that met his situation, I'm sure that you can find sufficient prayers to pray to the Lord in your situations as well. So many of the Psalms are written in times of distress by the people of God looking to the Lord. That I think the Psalms especially is a book that's especially helpful to you when you're in your own worst case scenario. And and you know what's interesting about this? Nothing brings a Psalm alive as much as when you have a problem of your own. I mean, maybe you've experienced, I know I've had, there's a psalm that I've read a dozen times before, kind of gone through it and said, yeah, that's nice. But in the midst of a trial, when I've read it through, it's been shocked and said, wow, that, that is talking about me and my situation exactly. Have you experienced that before? Some of you? Well, look to the psalms when you run into problems and trials and and they will come alive. I mean, just think about Psalm 23. How many applications come from Psalm 23? You're dealing with unemployment? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You're dealing with anxiety? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. The quiet water that's stilled. You're dealing with unbelief? God is the one who restores the soul. You're dealing with temptation? He's the one that guides us in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. Dealing with depression? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You're dealing with the uncertainties of the future? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You're dealing with the hurts of others? You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You're dealing with sickness? You've anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. You're dealing with discouragement. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, just see how Psalm 23, I just took a ton of applications. And that's what Jonah did. He was in the midst of this great fish and he was praying the Psalms. Now, he did pick some from Lamentations, some from other places, but mostly it was just the Psalms. Now, think about this. In order for Jonah to pray this, what had to have been true before he found himself in the fish? He had spent many days and many months and many years 
meditating on the Psalms. I commend the Psalms to you. I've been challenged by Jonah's prayer, which is so heavy. I've, I've been challenged to internalize God's Word that I might be ready when a crisis comes to pray as God would have us to pray. And just as the Psalms are applicable far beyond even their immediate context, so also Jonah's words, as he prays these things, struggling with what he is, I, I trust that they will be applicable to you in some way, somehow, in some manner. Well, with that as an extended introduction, let's look at Jonah's psalm. It's a psalm of mercy. That's what it is. I'm calling it even a psalm because it feels like that, sounds like that, tastes like that, feels like that. By way of outline, I've simply used four words for four different sections. There's nothing inspired about them. It just helps us to keep on track. My first word is this, overview, verse 2. Jonah in verse 2 just overviews his problem. He says, I called, I called out of my distress to the Lord and He answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. Beginning in verse 3, he's going to be more specific about the details of his salvation at sea. But here he just gives an overview of what took place in his peril. He was in danger and distress. And in his danger and distress, he called out to the Lord. And the Lord was gracious and kind and answered his prayer. And God saved him from his certain death. Now, in some sense, it seems as if this verse is misplaced, doesn't it? I mean, it seems as if Jonah gave praise to the Lord these words after he was on dry land. I mean, looking back at the entire fish event. In fact, some commentators say that Jonah chapter 2, verses 2 through 9 should really be placed after verse 10, after he's on the dry land. Then he can look back and reflect upon how God had saved him from the sea. And that may be the case. After all, these words aren't so much a prayer for help as they are a prayer of thanksgiving for what God has done. But here's the solution to, to it. I think that in verse 1, it says that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. I think he was praying in the stomach of the fish. And I think the key here is that Jonah 2 isn't a prayer for deliverance from the fish. It was a prayer of thanksgiving for his deliverance from the storm. In other words, when he was in the fish, I think Jonah felt pretty secure. Just as a, a baby feels pretty secure when mom or dad's arms are around it. So I think Jonah felt secure when he was in the fish, as opposed to flailing away at the sea. He had already been saved. He had been saved from drowning. In fact, and even if you look at chapter 2, the rest of it, drowning language is there, as we'll see. He was scared from the, from the drowning. He was calling out to the Lord. And God rescued him by placing him in the fish. Now ultimately he's going to have a, even a better rescue when he's on the dry land. But for Jonah, as soon as he's in the fish, he was secure. He felt saved. He felt rescued. But we can easily picture Jonah treading water up there upon the sea, trying to stay afloat. But after a bit of time, he became fatigued. Perhaps maybe a small bill came over him and put him under. <clears throat> you can see him being distressed about his situation. I mean, it's one thing to talk about dying when you're in the ship. And it's another thing to be drowning as Jonah was. I mean, Jonah could be big and boastful on the ship. Yeah, just throw me over and the sea will become calm for you. But then when he starts to <clears throat> gasp for air, it's another thing. It's like someone who tried to commit suicide and then realizes, no, I, I don't want to do this and changes his path. But Jonah felt himself to be dead. Such was his distress. 
It's not like he was treading water there easy like there upon the water. He said he cried from the depth of Sheol, that is, the grave, the place of the dead. He was on the precipice of dying. He was drowning when he cried for help. Now, we don't know what he said, but I think it was something like this. Help! Except, except we get this, he's underwater. So, we hear the... That's probably what he prayed. Can we all pray that together? Or maybe just screaming in his mind to God to help him because he's down underneath the water and we wouldn't have even seen and heard his prayer, but God heard his prayer. And God, in his mercy, answered Jonah's prayer for help. There's his overview. Now he gets into some details in verses 3 through 6. I'm simply calling it review. Let's just review what took place. Verse 3 You had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Here we see Jonah in the depth of the seas. He's below the surface of the water. He's in the deep. He's in the heart of the seas. That is, he's, 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 he's kind of down into it. Just our heart is in our body. So also Jonah was down into the sea, under the surface of the water. And he wasn't merely drifting peacefully. He was engulfed by this, by this current you ever been in the breakers of a, of a wave and you kind of get tossed around like this? You get caught in a turn? That's what Jonah was. And the breakers and billows were, were over him. He's buried deep beneath there. And notice how Jonah attributes his perilous situation to the hand of the Almighty. He says, you cast me into the deep. It's your breakers and billows that are over me. But wait, Jonah, wasn't it the sailors who threw you overboard? That's what I read in verse 15. And wasn't it your idea originally in the first place in verse 12? How can you say, Jonah, that it was the Lord who cast you into the deep? And I think it's because Jonah understood the situation clearly. He understood what was going on. That God was pursuing Jonah. He hurled the sea, brought the storm. He directed the lot. He'd shown Jonah of his disobedience. And behind whatever... The sailors did. There was the sovereign hand of God doing whatever it took to bring Jonah back to himself. Jonah's acts here were his rebellious acts of an unbeliever. They were coming from a God-fearing man. He testified in verse 9 that I am a God-fearer. I fear the Lord. Jonah was widely known as a prophet throughout Israel. I think that's why he knew the Psalms so well because he was a prophet. He was, he was studying. He knew of the, the Word of God. But in his rebellion, he fled from God's call upon his life, and God wasn't pleased with his actions. He's calling him back. Calling him back. I say this Are you running from the Lord today? Maybe last week, as I preached about Jonah, it found resonance in your heart. God may be bringing distress upon your life so as to bring you back if you're running today. I mean, look at what God did to Jonah. I mean, these things didn't come about by accident. They came here by God's sovereign and merciful hand upon his life to bring him back. Said, are, are there circumstances in your life that can only be explained because God's pursuing you in your rebellion? It may be the bad economy that's caused you to lose your job isn't merely just coincidence. It, it may be not be a coincidence you're sick. It may be not be by chance that you had that accident. So it may be that God is pursuing you, calling you back. Now here we need to be careful because two weeks ago we looked at um, 
John 15. And John 15 verse 2 says that every vine, every branch that produces fruit, he trims and he prunes so that it produces more fruit. So it might be these things are coming to your life to produce more fruit even. But it might be because you're running. And if it is, I plead with you to follow the path of Jonah who prayed. Even look in verse 4. He knew that God had been one who he kicked him out. I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Jonah felt as if his plunge in the sea was ascending away from God. Jonah tried to run and now he felt he had been expelled from his sight. As if God couldn't see him. Right? When you're expelled from school, you're cast out. You can't come, you can't come around here anymore. And Jonah felt like he was gone. And yet Jonah had hope. He said, there'll be a day when I will once again look upon the holy temple. And that might talk about the hope of heaven. The holy temple is how David described heaven where the Lord is seated, where He reigns and tests the sons of men. Psalm 11, verse 4. Furthermore, even in verse 7, is the temple speaks about where God is. Right? Or it might be His hope for rescue. He's going to again look upon His holy temple with a throng of worshipers. We don't exactly know what he was referring to in this, but, but the idea is clear that he says that Jonah again will be in the presence of the Lord. That Jonah will be there, whether it's in heaven or whether it's on earth, he will be close to the Lord. I mean, this you can see from the Hebrew parallelism. The first part talks about him being expelled from the Lord. And the second half talks about him bringing back, and that is his hope. He talks about returning to the presence of the Lord. And then verses 5 and 6, again a review about what took place. In the midst of the water, he said, Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. And weeds, he said, were wrapped around my head. And then verse 6 talks about the depths. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars around me forever. It's a pretty bleak picture. Water's all around him. He's at the point of death. Seaweed has wrapped himself completely around his head. Have you ever walked in a, a lake or something where there's seaweed and it kind of gets around your, your, your leg and you kind of got to wipe it off? Well, Jonah was there in the sea and somehow in the midst of the current engulfing him and all the weeds getting around him, it was wrapped all around his head, almost as if to smother him. And he felt himself descending deeper and deeper and deeper. He felt himself to be at the roots of the mountains. See, this big, tall mountains got a big base and they just kind of keep going right on down into the sea. He's talking about, I'm, I'm at the bottom. And the earth with his bars are around me forever. He just, he just felt enclosed and he felt trapped. In a perilous situation. And then comes the mercy of God upon his life. In fact, my message title this morning is Jonah Receives Mercy. And that's exactly what we see from here. Verse 6. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. The best we can figure is the big fish got Jonah deep in the sea. He was like a catfish maybe, you know, who crawls right along the bottom of the sea. Sees Jonah, gets him right there. Way down the bottom of the sea and carried him away in this fish submarine unto his eventual total salvation up upon the beach of West Israel. God in His mercy saved, heard Jonah, answered his prayer, and helped and saved him by means of a big fish. The fish was the means of his salvation. And for that he was thankful. And I think the big lesson for us here to learn in light of Jonah is God's mercy I mean, you need to catch how merciful this was. 
I mean, this was, this was sheer mercy in light of everything that Jonah had done to the Lord, how he had spurned him, how he had ignored him. It would have been perfectly just to have left Jonah there to drown. I mean, think about it. He was the prophet of God who was no way ignorant of God. He had disobeyed the call of his life to go to Nineveh and so went to Joppa to flee to Tarshish. He'd been hard-hearted. When all around him on the ship were calling out to God, to their gods, Jonah seemingly refused to pray to the Lord. Jonah wanted to die. Rather than live and follow God, he wanted to die. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. And he knew full well what was going on. He said, for then the sea would come calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. This is sailor-assisted suicide. That's what it was. He wanted to die. And yet, for some reason, he cried to the Lord for help. You think about how far he had to go, though, before his hard heart was softened even in a little way. I wouldn't be surprised the actual process of dying was too much for him. He was underwater, his lungs running out of air. He begins to feel the pains of his oxygen debt. Maybe he wanted to live after all. So he called the Lord and God rescued him by sending this big fish to carry him back to the land of Israel so he could actually go to Nineveh like he had been called to do. You know, God was under no obligation to save this man. There was no promise in the Bible that, that read like this. If my prophet, who is called by own, my own name, would humble himself and pray and seek my face and turn from his wicked way, then I will hear from heaven, forgive his sin, and rescue him from the depths of the waters. There's no promise in the Bible like that. God had made him no such promise. He could have died in his disobedience and God would have been completely just. And yet here it is, by God's sheer mercy, he saved him. That's the point of my message this morning. Jonah receives mercy. The only reason he's saved because of the mercy of God. There's much for us really to gleam here. The theme of Jonah is even as we have here on the screen. Do you love mercy? Are you going to sail away to Nineveh? To Tarshish, are you going to, to go to Nineveh according to what God says? Which way are you going to go? Do you love mercy to the Ninevites? And do you love mercy on yourself? Listen, what I love about God is that God loves mercy. That, that's all that Jonah's about. He loves sharing out His love and His kindness upon those who don't deserve it, upon those who are disobedient. He did it first to Jonah that Jonah might experience what it means to be saved. And, and it was filled his heart with thanksgiving and prayer. Even as we'll see down in verse 9, he's going to offer to God with a voice of thanksgiving. God loves to give mercy. He often extends mercy to his creatures. In fact, I, we know so much of his mercy that we presume upon his mercy. We just think that's the way that God always acts. I mean, such is the pattern of God. We know of His mercy. We've experienced of His mercy. Have you experienced of His mercy in your soul? Have you come to a point of desperation like Jonah has? And said, I've got no... I have nothing in my hands I can cling. God, simply the cross, I'm clinging. I'm just pleading to you for mercy. Have you ever seen the horrors of your sin and pleaded to Him for forgiveness, the cross of Christ? Here's the amazing thing. This God is like the prodigal father who receives back prodigal, wasteful children. So He is. He loves to extend mercy. Have you received it? And if you've received it, do you love extending it to other people? That's what Jonah's about. Jonah loved it when he received it. 
but didn't want to extend it. I think one way to see whether you love mercy or not is to test and think about how willing are people to how willing are others to come to you to either confess sin or deal with some problem in some way that they have wronged you. If you have developed a pattern in your life of one that just openly embraces and forgives as much as you have been forgiven, people will come to you. But if you have constantly showed yourself to hold grudges or be real hard or demand performance from other people, people won't come to you. They'll be turned away from you. We come naturally. I mean, think about it. When someone's really thankful, aren't they pleasant to be around? When people are kind and gracious, overlooking transgressions, don't you like to be around those people? You do. And so they'll come to you. They'll be your friends. They'll be around because they know that you're going to receive them and help them and open arms to them. Mercy. So when people come to you, what do they get? Do they, do they think in your mind, well, I know this person's going to forgive me because that's all they've been about. They're always about forgiving me. They're always extending this kindness to me. They're always extending this mercy to me. Or do you think of them as one who's going to turn you away because they're always critical of me? They're always hard on me. They don't extend their love to me. Do you love mercy? I'm thankful that God loves mercy. This allows us even to stand before Him, and so was Jonah. Well, let's look at verse 7. We've seen overview, review. This, my word here, is prayer. This verse is short. We're just going to deal only a little bit with this, but I think this actually talks about the time when he prayed, the circumstances surrounding his prayer. Jonah said, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Drowning victims will hold their breath underwater as long as possible. Sometimes there will be you know, involuntary spasms which will try to get, get the air in. But at some point, when they, without air, they're going to they're deprive the brain of oxygen and then they will pass out. And I think that Jonah describes that process. I think that's how far he got. His process, he describes as being fainting away, right, right about to black out is where Jonah was. <laughs> this is astonishing. If you read this the way I've read it, it's then that he remembered the Lord. It's then that he prayed to Him. I, I think the sense you get from this is that Jonah's heart was still hard while he was treading on top of the water. Seeing those those uh, Phoenician sailors or whoever they were offering their sacrifice. Oh, but only once when he was down under the water, only once when he was deprived of oxygen, only, only when he was about to fade out and black out was his heart softened. It's probably hard for some times he struggled to survive. But not until the very end did Jonah pray. But his prayer came to the Lord, arrived in his holy temple. And he answered quickly, by rescuing him through the fish. Now, uh, I find this very interesting. Jonah is descending down, waiting and waiting, and, and God, God had to have sent this fish a long time ago. It, it's not as if God said, oh, now you're praying. Okay, let me get this fish, and finding a fish in the sea and bringing it. This fish was full-fledged on its way in route. This fish was there, just waiting for Jonah to pray, waiting for Jonah to pray, waiting for Jonah. He prayed, and then he got, got it. Got saved. Do you think it's important to pray? Well, God knows anyway. Well, of course He knows anyway. He's sending the rescue and the deliverance right now. But when you pray, it comes. Our prayer often is the means through which it comes. 
How easy is it for us to be like Jonah? We can often wait to pray until we've exhausted every last resource. I know as a pastor, I get calls often from people who are looking just for money, looking for a handout. You know, it's like this big crisis situation. And I'm like, well, what about family? What about friends? What about your church family? Why are you calling us for help? I said, we're, we're, not, we're not just this social organization. We help people in our church first. What, do you have our church? No, I'm not involved in church. But now it's, things are desperate, right? Their rent is due tomorrow. But they've not thought much about it, prayed until the end. And how many times to the last dollars in the bank account we really pray for financial provision? It's only when the pregnancy shows warning signs that you start to pray. It's only after the car crash that we pray. It's only when the marriage turns sour that we pray. It's only when we're totally confused about the future that we pray. Rather than always, always praying. And oh, let's not be like Jonah. Let's pray early and often. Well, that's prayer. My last point this morning is promise. Before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're going to look at this. The promise of Jonah. He says, Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. It's amazing that Jonah would make such an observation from the stomach of the fish, but he knew that no idol could save him like this. I mean, each of the sailors on the ship, when the the storm originally came, they cried to their own God. Chapter 1, verse 5. But an idol can't bring the storm upon the sea. An idol can't direct the lot. An idol can't calm the storm. And an idol can't save from the seas. Only the Lord of heaven and earth can, and Jonah knows this all too well. And Jonah, instead of regarding the vain idols, forsaking their faithfulness, pleads to the Lord. He pledges his obedience. He says, he will be thankful. Verse 9, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. He will be faithful. That which he has vowed, he will pay. I think Jonah's prayer is like the prayers that are often prayed in desperation. Lord, if you, if you rescue me, I'll, I'll never be late to church again. I'll never miss church. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go to small groups every time they meet. Or, or Lord, I'll, 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 give, I'll give half of what I, what I earn to you. Or Lord, and this is the famous one, right? Lord, I'll be a missionary. Well, I think that's, that was Jonah's prayer. That which I vowed, I will, I, I will go. That's what God was calling him to do. He says, I'll go. He fulfilled that vow in chapter 3. Verse 3. And there's a commendable nature to that, but oftentimes prayers made in desperation are never come to fruition in life. You notice that? A lot of times someone prays in their desperation, in their hurt. Like, like I got a friend of mine who I grew up in high school with. He's not really so much of a friend anymore, but uh, I knew him. And he was in a car accident. And he flipped over and, and uh, was, broke his neck. God saved him. When I, I, I went to see him, let's see, I was probably I was probably 25 or so, so kind of been in high school for some years. I heard that he had his halo, so I went to visit him, and he had this, and he, he was just all talking about the Lord, how thankful he was, and just how much he wants to serve him, and then what happened once the halo got off and the years went by. Now he's a drummer in Las Vegas, working whatever, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, just wait till the wee hours of the morning, and he golfs 
every Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. It's his life. He's making more money than he knows what to do with, is being a drummer of a rock band. Just <laughs> totally far from God. I, talk, I saw his parents recently and said, totally far from God. How often it is that what we vow in a moment of desperation, like with a halo on our head to keep our broken neck, will fail to fulfill. But Jonah promised to fulfill it, and I believe he did, in going to, to Nineveh. Although even his heart wasn't fully engaged, we'll see in chapter 4. But then comes the, the key phrase in all of Jonah's psalm. It comes there in verse 9. Salvation is from the Lord. Let's say it together. Salvation is from the Lord. Say it again. Salvation is from the Lord. Listen, Jonah knew that salvation was from the Lord. He knew he didn't save himself from the seas. He knew that he'd done everything wrong except that last moment when he cried to the Lord for help and God saved him. You know, and the same is true for us as well. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've been saved from your sin, you know that you didn't do it yourself. I mean, would the truth be known, you're a bit like Jonah, running away from God, but God did the saving. You did the running, but God did the saving. See, the Bible says that God saved us when we were yet sinners. It's when Christ died for us. See, it's when we are God's enemies that God reconciled us to Himself. And Jonah, in rebelling against the Lord, was in many ways God's enemy at that point. And God was saving him and delivering him and bringing him back. Jonah's a great picture of us. We all sin like him, right? But, Ephesians 2.4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, even when we were like Jonah at the bottom of the sea, even then He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. It wasn't Jonah who, who got his scuba gear or who, who swam up to the surface. No, it was God who saved him. Salvation is from the Lord. And it was based on His mercy, right? Titus 3.5 He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness. I mean, Jonah in the, in the belly of this fish, Jonah, when he was down there drowning, he didn't say, oh God, look at all the righteous things I did for you. No. It's not because of the things we've done in righteousness, but what is according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. God is the one who does all the saving. He does all the saving from first to last. Right? And the, the great verse for this is Romans 8. Verse 29 and 30 talks about how before time began... And in the time and in the time future, it's all of God, right? Those He foreknew, those He foreloved beforehand. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so we might be the first fruits among many brethren. This is all done before time began. And then it says in verse thirty that whom He predestined, He called in time. He's calling out to us. He called us, and whom He called, these He also justified through faith in Christ. And those He justified, He also glorified. It's already done. In the past tense, God has done all of salvation from first to last. Salvation is from the Lord. And it can well be argued that this little phrase summarizes the entire theme of the Bible. My father recently gave me a book. He's always given me books. He puts these tomes on my desk and says, Steve, this would be a good one for you to read. And um, I don't read most of them. <laughs> I say, thanks, thanks for the book, Dad. I'll put it on my shelf. Thanks. But this is um, Salvation Belongs to Our God, celebrating the Bible's central story. 
Salvation belongs to our God. Celebrating the Bible's central stories that God is a redeeming God. I want to just read some. At least I have started the first chapter, and so I'll read for you from the first chapter, which I read not long ago. He says, The Bible ends with a climactic final chorus. The whole of creation will sing it, and it sums up the message of the whole Bible story. It is not a long song, but it sums up a very long story. It's a song we will not want to get out of our heads, our hearts, for all eternity. Here it is from John's vision, Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now what would have been in the mind of someone who wrote saying, Salvation belongs to our God? What we discover when we track the vocabulary through the Bible is it has a very broad and comprehensive range of significance in both Old Testament and New Testament. The statement that God saves covers a huge range of realities, situations, and experiences. And the reason for this immense variety of circumstances in which God's saving engagement with people takes place through a great sweep of biblical history. The fact is, here it is, we human beings need a lot of saving. And God does a lot of saving in the Bible. That's the book's about, what the Bible's about. We need a lot of saving, and God does a lot of saving, because salvation belongs to our God. Salvation comes from the Lord. And however you say it, it doesn't much matter. Whether you say it here like Jonah 2.9, or whether you say it like Revelation chapter 7. The truth is that God's the author of our salvation, He's the worker of our salvation, He's the owner of our salvation, and let us never ever, ever forget that. Outside my office door, I have a little art project that one of my, my children did. One of my children have this. And um, my, my office, I think most of you have been there, if you've been over to our house, is uh, outside through our garage, and then I, I come into this door, which goes into my office. And this sits there. It's got, the, it's got um, magnets there on the back. sits right there on my door. And um, I see this every time I go in and out of my door. Uh, it says on the back, Carissa Brandon, 61203. That's like six years ago. As soon as she gave it to me, did you make it here? Class, where did you make it? A VBS in DeKalb. Made it, Salvation is the Lord. And you know like kids do, they just give it to you. And a lot of those find themselves in the deep six, right? But this found its way onto my office door, and it has sat there for six years. And so every time I see it, so I, I did a little calculation. I said, you know what, probably on a typical day, I'm probably in my office ten times, whether it's for a lunch break, a bathroom, a snack, talk, get something, run to the mail, um, whatever, go out, you know, whatever. Probably about ten times, I'm guessing. That's not scientific, but suppose ten times every day. It's pretty close. 365 days a year for 20,000 times I've looked at this thing. And yet, do you think I even see this thing? I, 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 like, I like don't even see this thing anymore. It's just on my door, and that's how it is. You know, when someone new comes, oh, salvation from the Lord, oh, that's pretty good. They see it, but I don't see it because it becomes so familiar to me. And I just think about how easily that can take place in the Bible. We're so familiar with it. We read it, and we read it, and we read it, and we still miss the main point of it all. 
being more interested in other things rather than the main storyline of the Bible, which is the story of redemption. See, the Bible is a story about how God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to really celebrate that salvation that God has provided through celebrating the Lord's Supper together. So the men, if they'd like to be able to get up and and go over. I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 12. It's where Jesus refers to this passage here in Jonah. I mentioned it earlier. It's why I believe that Jonah was a real fish. Matthew chapter 12. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him. The crowds were made, saying, oh, maybe this is the Messiah. And of course, the scribes and Pharisees said, no, he's casting out demons by the ruler of demons. Then Jesus rebuked those who didn't believe, and then he, he said here in verse 39, after they requested a sign, he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The parallel between Jonah and Jesus. So just as Jonah was in the belly of this sea monster, this giant fish, three days and three nights, so also Jesus would be in the grave, in the tomb, three days and three nights. It's the biggest factor why believing Jonah is true. It's because Jesus said they were true. As we prepare for the supper, I just want to ask this question. Why was Jesus there? Why was Jesus there? Well, he was there because he was crucified according to God's plan. That's why he was there. According to God's plan, dead on the cross there. He was there in the tomb because he had paid for our sins upon the cross. It's a sacrifice for us. That's why he was there. How different Jesus was than Jonah, right? Jonah was there because of his disobedience, but Jesus was there because of his obedience. Jesus was there because God forsook him upon the cross, that God might not forsake us. Jesus was there in the ground because he didn't open his mouth, but became as a lamb led to slaughter. Jesus was there because He chose not to save Himself, but to save others. Jesus was there because He showed His love for us in laying down His life for His friends. Jesus was there that He might taste death for us. According to Hebrews 2.9. Jesus was there to fulfill prophecy that the Son of Man must suffer and die for the sins of His people. Jesus was there to inaugurate the new covenant through His blood. Jesus was there in the ground that we might enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. That's why He was there. All these reasons to save us from our sins. The good news is this, that God didn't abandon His soul to Sheol. God didn't allow His Holy One to undergo decay, but God raised Him up on the third day according to the Scriptures. And in raising Christ up, we have hope in Him of eternal life through faith. It's all God's mercy. It's all what it is. 
And so as we celebrate this morning and take the bread and take the cup, this is what Jesus told us to remember. He said, take the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant. And as we take these things, we're again reminded of the Bible's central theme. Salvation belongs to our God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we would celebrate the Lord's Supper here this morning, we might examine our hearts. We might think upon our own life, whether we are as Jonah, whether we are walking in a a way with the Spirit. I, I would pray that, God, You would convict us of our sin, that You would show us our need of Christ. For those who are harboring sins like Jonah, they'd cry out to You even now that there would be a a semblance of restoration, that they might eat of this supper with a clean conscience before You. So I pray, Lord, that You would guide us even now to think upon the cross and think upon Your mercy, think upon the, the holy heart of Christ which was crucified for us. So even now, I pray perhaps there are people here who aren't believing. If you're not believing in Christ, let the supper pass you. It's not for you. But if you're clinging to Him and you're trusting Him, you've confessed your sins, you're walking rightly before Him, then take of the supper. May it strengthen our souls as we do so as we commune with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.